Welcome to Life on Your Terms with me, Jake Rosenthal, a podcast giving you a roadmap to financial freedom, exploring topics like real estate, business, health, and mindset. At the age of 30, I built a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio while simultaneously working a full-time job in tech sales. This enabled me to leave the W2 rat race and live each day on my own terms. I believe every single person has the potential to take control of their financial future and create a life of abundance, and I'm going to show you how. Thanks for tuning in. So happy you were able to join us today. Today, Christian Ballou is actually interviewing me on his podcast. Christian is the CEO of Momentum Capital Group, and they specialize in ADUs and investing in ADUs in the San Diego area. On this episode, I talk about how I got into real estate, doing my first deal, my best deal, and what made it great, house hacking, mindset, what I'm currently up to, and so much more. At the end of this episode, you'll learn why it's so important to take action, why house hacking is so powerful, and the importance of mindset and joining masterminds. Before we dive into today's episode, it would mean the world to me if you took two seconds out of your day to subscribe to the podcast. Not only does this ensure you'll never miss an episode, but it also greatly helps the growth of this podcast. Thanks and enjoy the show. All right, so I'm Christian Blue. This is Jake Rosenthal, and, and uh, today we're just going to talk a little bit about real estate and uh, do it in front of this beautiful view here in San Diego. Jake, give a little bit of background into who you are and and um, you know where you got started. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Christian. Uh, always love to chop it up and talk yeah. about real estate, especially with someone else who who knows quite a bit. So yeah, got started in real estate about five years ago, actually when I was living out in SoCal. One of my colleagues, uh, so I, when I was working my W-2 in tech sales, one of Which my- Which I co- want to talk about, because yeah, you just exited your W-2. Just left in July. So uh, one of my colleagues was talking, he's like, yeah, I just bought a house out in, uh, I think it was somewhere in the Midwest. There's like, I just bought my fifth house. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> just bought your fifth house. And this guy was, you know, pretty good at sales, but nothing crazy. I'm like, in my head, I'm like a house, you have to be making millions of dollars, you know, like, what do you mean you just bought your fifth house? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. So he starts talking about, you know, investment properties and putting, you know, a low percent down. And uh, he said, just go check out Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I said, all right. So I go back that night, check out Rich Dad, Poor Dad, blow through it in a day. And my mind is just completely shifted. So a couple of days later, I start cutting back on expenses. I sell my Jeep. I just like at all these ways to start reducing expenses. But pretty quickly, I realized, you know, real estate in SoCal is super expensive. I was living in Newport Beach at the time and uh, go check out a, a, a crappy three bed, two bath <laughs> house down the street. And there's still like $750,000. And this is back in, uh, you know, 2017. I was like, ah, yeah, I don't think this is going to work. So luckily at the time, I actually had a job promotion coming up at my W-2 which I originally laughed off because I loved SoCal. I didn't want to go back east. And it was in Philadelphia where I had some family on the East Coast. And so I revisited that. I said, you know what? It's actually a good, good opportunity to take this job promotion. And uh, real estate was probably about 10% of the price compared to, 
to um, to SoCal. So that was kind of my launching off point and got into some in investment properties there. And that's nice. how it all started. So that was, uh, you bought your first property in Philly when you moved out there? Yep. So I actually bought the first one uh, sight unseen before moving there. So I uh, connected with a realtor, started looking at properties and bought a, a $270,000 triplex in, uh, in Northeast Philadelphia before physically walking through it. So closed on that one. And then- um, Did one, you live there? So we didn't live in that one. We bought a second one or I bought a second one prior to moving that was a house hack. So I okay. bought a triplex for 3.5% down, sight unseen as well, in another neighborhood in Philadelphia called Maniung. So before moving, probably within three months of reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, cut down on all my expenses substantially and bought those two houses, one of them being a house hack, moved in. So now I had some substantial cash flow coming in from the triplex. I was living essentially rent-free in the, or sorry, I had uh, the, the rental property, the cash flow coming in and then some uh, saving on the, the house hack with the triplex. So That's amazing. I feel like the house hack I want to touch on, I, I've talked about house hacking a lot, but it's kind of like a weird term and not many people understand it. But that was where I felt like my real estate went from just buying like a single family and buying a, a home every once in a while to being able to just like buy deals as deals came about and, you know, flip a few, do short term rentals. Like house hacking was really what like allowed me to exponentially grow my portfolio. So what's your take on house hacking? Like what your impression of it was when you got started, like when you first heard the term and like how you utilized it in that situation? Totally, Christian. So I couldn't agree more. I think house hacking gives you the power to take those risks. Yeah. So we're both younger. I think we're both 30 years old. So we already have kind of, we're in a good spot to take risks right now. You yeah. Know, we, we can fail and a lot of things can not go our way and we still have a lot of time to make up for it. Yeah. So we're already at an advantage there. If you, if you couple that with house hacking, you're really compounding that risk taking effect. Yeah. So we can do some of those things where you can, you know, take some of these gambles where you, you know, 10, 20, 30 extra money, but you know, you could, there's some downside too, but you know yeah. that your expenses are pretty low because you know, the number one living expense in America is housing, is housing. So if you can cut down on that expense or eliminate it altogether, I mean, worst scenario, you lose a good chunk of your money, but you're you're living pretty low cost, so you can bounce back from it. If you have this super high mortgage payment or super high rent payment, you lose your job, you lose you know you you lose all your income. You might be yeah. screwed pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, you mentioned like cutting your expenses. Like I feel like just being a real estate broker and dealing with clients, like just getting started or purchasing their first home. Like that's not the first thought. There's just like, how do I get proved? And like, this is the standard of life that I live. So like, how do I get proved with this? But like, talk a little bit how like you went from, you know, like you said, having a Jeep to like selling that and just living low cost. I feel like that's not something looked at. Like you just have your W-2 and you kind of spend, spend what you get and there's not much savings that left. I don't know. That's my impression of, of what I see most in the W-2 world. I was in the W-2 world for a few years. And, and um, so like cost cutting, why was that your first thought when you went to go buy real estate? Sure. Yeah. So it was just a mindset shift, right? So 
I didn't want to be stuck in the rat race. Yeah. So I've, I've grown up always with this kind of entrepreneurial mindset and sales for me was probably the best W2 job I could get because you kind of are running your own enterprise, your own business in a sense. Yeah. And the commission is uncapped. Yep. So I like that aspect of it, but I was never really trying to do a work a W2 for good. Yep. And I didn't want to be dependent on that income. So as soon as I kind of shifted my mindset after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was like, wow, I'm essentially a cog in the wheel. I'm a, I'm a hamster on a hamster wheel, yeah. just working for the man, depending on this money, not quite living paycheck to paycheck, but pretty close to it, being a good boy, putting my money in my 401k <laughs> and just doing all the things everyone says you should do. But as soon as I broke out of that mold, I w- it became so, so clear to me that it was I was a terrible path to be on. And I'm someone once I realize something and I, I'm you know dedicated to something, I'm going to just run full speed ahead. I'm not going to half ass it. So that's what I did. Um, and I shifted that mindset, started cutting expenses and, and the house hack I and mean, cutting some of these major expenses like that big G payment and, and those types of things really enabled me to take action and grow my real estate portfolio. It's awesome. So you bought the six units in Philly and then uh, during that time, were you single or, you know, engaged or what did that look like and, and how did it like take any convincing to move sure. into a house hack? So I wasn't previously engaged. Uh, thank God I didn't go through that one. <laughs> um, dodged a bullet there for sure. But yeah, was engaged at the time. And um, so I bought those two properties. So I had the investment triplex and then the house hack I was living in. And at the time, uh, probably about four months living into the house hack, another triplex right up the street came up for sale. And awesome. of course, I'm going to go look at it. One <laughs> thing leads to another is priced really well. So I got the original triplex for, I think, 437 And this one was priced at 385 Okay. And it was a better property. So just, you know, the, I know in, in Claremont, for instance, with you buying the ADUs, you know, like what a good buy is. And it was yeah, the yeah. same type of thing. Like it was on my street in my neighborhood. I'm like, this is a good deal first day put an offer and you know got that done closed on that property and and told uh, my my fiance at the time hey we're we're moving again but it's right up the street so maybe that was uh, one of the reasons that didn't work out but uh <laughs> yeah some some personalities don't mesh yeah but we ended up moving so really quickly now i had two investment properties and i was living in another house act so now i have all that income coming in from those two investment properties i'm living rent free in the uh the house hack I'm cutting expenses, I'm getting promoted at my job, so I'm making more income on the commission, and I'm just stacking my chips. And then the best thing that happened was when rates got really low, I think I refied from like rate, a rate in the five mm-hmm. uh, with the FHA loans, and I had enough equity in those houses at that point to drop the PMI to get into a nice 30-year fixed, and I think I refied to like 3%, so now I was cash flowing even more because my rates yeah. dropped. So that, that put me in a really good spot. And did you cash out refinance on those or it wasn't, it was just rate? I just did a regular refi just because two of those were FHAs 3.5% uh, down. Okay. And uh, there wasn't quite enough equity to make it worth it, but just rolling the equity into the closing costs yeah. and getting a better rate. Another trick I will mention is if you're not married yet, which is something I did, you can get an FHA under your uh, significant other's name as well. Yeah. And for anyone who's considering getting married or even engaged, I would recommend doing that ASAP because you could go out and get an FHA under your name tomorrow and your spouse's name the next day. And it's not like you're disqualified once you get married. You can keep both. Yeah. Once you're married, you can't do that. So it's a really good way to get into two investment properties pretty quickly. Definitely. And 
I explain that to clients all the time in terms of the FHA and using the low down payment. I think the biggest like battle or concern I have or clients have with that right away, which I've used the same. I've used, used FHA probably two to three times now. And you know, the biggest battle that I see from clients is, is PMI. That's their biggest concern every time. What was your like take on PMI and doing a low down payment purchase? And did that even come up or was it just, Hey, I could get this deal and, and I'm going to use this product. What'd you, would you go through or think through sure. on there? So I didn't think twice about the PMI. <clears throat> I looked at it as short lived, which I is the correct way to look at it in my opinion similar to interest rates now people are saying oh i'm gonna wait for rates to drop well you know what's gonna happen when rates drop right yeah. prices are gonna go through the roof and those are definitely the same people that were complaining they couldn't buy a deal two years ago because there's too much competition yeah you're never gonna get both so similar mindset with the pmi i'd rather take the pmi get in for a low down payment and just get in the game the most important thing is to get in the game you're gonna build equity and then the pmi will fall off you'll refinance yeah. out it's short lived so yeah. yeah go put 20 25 percent down and don't have the pmi that could be a couple hundred thousand dollars out of your pocket i know i can go make more money on that 200 extra thousand dollars in other investments than yeah. in the super small PMI. I will take a low down payment 10 out of 10 times. If someone said you could put 1% down on real estate, I would do it. I love leverage. I yeah. will leverage all day long. I think it's one of the most powerful aspects of real estate. Yeah, because if you, if you have $200,000 in the stock market, 200,000 only grows by the seven to 8% that you get there. If you have 200,000 in real estate, more than likely you can buy with a low down payment loan, you could buy a couple properties. You know, even if you put that towards one home or one property, that 200,000 doesn't grow by the 10% of that property. It grows by the purchase price. So you put 200,000 down on a million dollar property. Now all of a sudden you got a million dollars growing by 10% as opposed to you know, just your 200 grand growing like that. So I've right now I've owned, I own 15 properties and I've never once other than I shouldn't say never once twice. I've put 20% down on a property and it was because they were out of state properties and they were investment properties. I had to put up, they were commercial loans and had to put 20% down, but those purchase prices were 500,000 and 600,000. But all of my properties in San Diego, it's been three and a half to 8% down. I completely agree. I feel like if you looked at our balance sheets, most normal or most day-to-day -day W-2 employees would be so, would be blown away by the, the debt. And debt is just put out there as so scary in this like, it, which it is. Bad debt is terrible. But I think... You know, the way we use debt and the way you can continue to leverage and you can continue to snowball your deals and, and your cash flow, I think that's like incredible. So those were all long-term rentals, right? Those were all long-term rentals, exactly. Okay. And did you, uh, like, I know you started to move into short-term rentals at some point. What, like, made that transition and, and what did that look like? Sure, yeah. So a guy within my network, I always had the mindset of, 
um, short-term rentals are super risky, right? Because yeah. it's like, if it doesn't, a lot of these markets, the beauty, but also the ugly part of short-term rentals is these places would not pencil if they were long-term rentals. So they're usually very popular um, vacation rental markets. So if you were to do the underwriting for a long-term rental, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. But the appreciation on these places is very high because they're very sought after places. So but it's scary, right? Because if the regulations come in, that's what everyone yeah. was telling me, at least. Regulations come in, you're not, you're going to lose your shirt. Once I started educating myself a little bit more and talking to some people who were actually doing it, I was like, wait a second. This market's been around for, you know, 70 years, way before even Airbnb. Yeah. This is pretty safe. You know, yep. this is this is a big part of the economy there. So um, after chatting with him, he actually was uh, super successful in St. Augustine, Florida. He had a couple rentals there. So he piqued my interest and I said, you know what? He already has the network built out there. Let me just buy one there. Um, so that's how it all started. I, I purchased my first uh, short-term rental in St. Augustine in uh, 2021. Okay. And uh, since then, I've have purchased quite a few there and they've, uh, they've done really well. It's awesome. How many of those do you own over there? So I own uh, three in St. Augustine okay. and then uh, one in the, uh, the Poconos in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Probably get to visit those pretty uh, right, right off those trips and everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, being out in Southern California now, it's a little less appealing to, uh, to go to Florida <laughs> yeah. as often. But it's definitely, it's definitely not a bad place to visit. Yeah, that's for sure. And so the other properties, what would you do with those? So some of them I did 1031 exchanges into okay. the short-term rentals. There's actually one more uh, additional property in Philadelphia that I did buy. That's a duplex that I still own, new construction. But outside of that, the other properties I, I've disposed of in some way, 1031s uh, for, for most of them. Okay. So going back to when you started, that was 2017 was when you bought your first piece of real estate? Yep. Okay. And in that time so it's six years almost seven years you've grown this understanding like how long did it take you to where you felt very comfortable i feel like you seem extremely confident about your real estate investments you know the leverage all these sort of things but it doesn't you know it obviously doesn't come overnight like at what point were you like this is what i'm doing and and the, the confidence was there totally yeah it's a great point christian i feel like a lot of like a lot of things in life you got to just take action and get the reps in i think too many people spend too much time just reading all the books listening to all the podcasts talking to all the people checking off all the boxes yeah which is important to educate yourself and it's important to have a baseline level of understanding so you're not reckless yeah but people get into this analysis paralysis loop and they never take action they want yep. their investments to be totally risk-free and it's just never going to happen so um, i think it's super important to just get in the game take action and learn as you go so that's what i did and i got more and more confident as i went so there's different levels of the confidence you know at certain times it's probably more confident than i should be and then you get hit in the face you get back down you're like okay another learning lesson there but you know it's it, it, the confidence came over time in stages i would say yeah i agree i feel like you start to level up like first comes like a podcast bigger pockets was one for me that that started to like plant different things in there but you know then you start to grow out of that education level and you start to learn a little bit more books and and i think the third realm which is where we we met is is like masterminds and your network i feel like that's where like people have already done what you're doing and people you know have gone through the same growth you know, pains, growing pains that, that we're currently going through. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you know, I did this 
to get out of there. Or I, I, I did a 1031 exchange, moved my properties to another place, and it really maximized my returns there. I feel like that's like kind of the level that we've been when experiencing a ton of growth lately. But, you know, we've talked about a bunch of your real estate that you currently own or you've you've sold in 1031 exchange to. Of all the real estate you've purchased, what's your uh, favorite piece of real estate? Definitely. And just to, to hit on that last point, I think um, before I forget, because it's so powerful what you said, the power of networking. Yeah and mentors it cannot be understated you know joining mastermind groups and just natural mentors it's all about the people you surround yourself with if you surround yourself with four people who are super fear-based who have never done it before you're going to be fear-based if you surround yourself with four multi-millionaires who are investing in you know and own hundreds of of units of real estate you're going to be the fifth it's yeah. all about who you surround yourself with it. It's the number it's the number one most important thing, hands down. For sure. Uh, so that can't be understated and I didn't want to I didn't want to. I feel like I jumped that. over that. I jumped to the next question, but like that's like extremely important and something that's like every day I'm like realizing how much more important it is. Totally. Like you're talking about, you know, maybe you're talking about a million dollar ten thirty one exchange or a hundred thousand dollar tax problem or different issues you're facing in your current environment that sometimes cannot come off so I don't know I don't know what the term is but like it's not the norm for most people to talk about but then you get around the right people and you mention something like that and they have a solution they have like what they've done in the past and and what they would change and uh yeah mentorship and and I I think it it it's still looked at pretty uh or at least from what I see on social media and on, you know, different platforms is, I feel like it's still seen as like a, a guru, like just like, I don't know, masterminds and coaching and all that. And like, even looking back or putting myself in when I was in a W2, I wouldn't pay for, you know, five, 10 grand to join a mastermind or hire a coach. But now it's just like part of what you do. And it's for part sure. of your, your expenses. I couldn't, I couldn't recommend it enough because I forget where I heard this quote or uh, this concept, but you're going to pay one way or another, right? Yeah. So you're either going to pay through time of just, it's going to take you a really long time to learn everything you need to. And you're probably not going to even learn it all, or you're going to pay for it in making a really big mistake in something that you buy and just losing a ton of money, which is a good education as well. Like if yep. you just, that's one way to do it. You go out, say you wanted to go buy, you know, uh, a flip, go out, buy that flip and mess it up most likely and learn a ton along the way, lose some money, and then you'll, you'll be better for the next one, which is the school of hard knocks. You could totally do that. Or you could pay for the mentorship. Yeah. You could expedite your learning and you can probably avoid that mistake. And so you're paying one way or another, right? So yeah. it's like, I, I've learned, hey, it's totally worth it. Like these 10, $20,000 masterminds, it's a lot of money. But if that's going to help me get a deal faster or help me get a better deal, it's a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. It's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. And we'll come back to the favorite piece of real estate because I, I have a feeling that we're sitting at it, but I feel like that there's a shift and you were talking about cost cutting and, and like starting to just grow the portfolio. But if you could go back and like, you know, change a few things or one major thing in terms of what you learned and, and, and just starting back over, what would be the one major thing you'd implement a little bit earlier? And, uh, you know, what would you recommend someone just starting out to do earlier in their career? Totally. So this is something I hear often, but I couldn't agree more. I think just going bigger 
earlier. I think a lot like of people that. think very small for a long period of time, which is understandable. You're just dipping your toe. It's scary out there. So that's okay. But I think I would have gone bigger earlier. So I'm just starting to get into the boutique hotel space, leveling up from the single family short term rental space and just starting to kind of understand uh, and underwrite some of these commercial deals. You start to understand how the velocity of money moves so much faster yeah, um, and how it's much more of a business. And I wish I just took that leap earlier. Yep. So I think whatever thinking bigger means for you, that's something I would have just done earlier. Okay. And what, like, there's a shift there that, like, you have to, like, hit going from someone who's just starting out thinking small. And, like, what would you say to someone like that who's stuck there and, like, to encourage that thinking bigger? So what I would say is it's no harder to do the big deal than it is to do the small deal. And I think that's a big misconception. You say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, a 20-unit apartment building or 40 or 50, it's really the same thing, if not potentially easier because you can start to leverage a lot of these systems and outsource a lot of these this stuff because you're making enough money and you have economies of scale where you can bring you know you can utilize the who not how methodology and you have the money to pay for it if you get that single family house or even a couple of them you're like making enough that you're like oh I'm, i'm doing well here but you're like not making enough where you can bring those you know, the outsource a lot of those tasks, you're in this like really awkward stage. Yeah. And it's once again, it's I really don't think it's any harder to close on a a big multifamily deal or commercial deal than it is to close on a single family house. A a lot of the things are actually easier. Yeah. So I think it's a limited mindset or just a a scarcity mindset, which is true with a lot of things in life. And just overcoming that mindset is is a huge component. Yeah, definitely. So I feel like I 100% agree on going bigger is easier. One thing I've done is I I went bigger and then I kind of retracted and I I focus on what I know. I'm going bigger in terms of the developments and in terms of the the different ADU developments and multifamily conversions. But that step is really much easier to do in terms of what I'm doing that's going bigger is buying more and bringing on investor money. And I think that the biggest thing someone or our viewers are going to say is like going bigger. Okay. Well, you can't access that low down payment mortgage, or you can't, you know, buy a a multi-million dollar 20% down multifamily. But I think the biggest thing that, that you have as you're starting out is time, time to get educated and time to be the best, you know, beginning investor that's buying a multifamily deal. You have time to find these off-market deals. If you have a deal that makes sense and will make someone money, there's plenty of people willing to give you cash for that down payment. Doing a joint venture, doing all these sort of things that really negates the idea that you can't get into it because you don't have enough money for the down payment. I think that there's just a level of, of learning there that people understand how to get a mortgage for a single family home or understand you know, they could go get a realtor and go get a lender and get that single family home. That's a a low hanging fruit, but expanding beyond that, like, okay, well, how do I touch base with a commercial lender and how do I start to find these deals? And I think another thing that, that you've done, you live in San Diego, but none of your real estate other than your home is in San Diego. How do you like for someone wanting to get into real estate, living in San Diego, but maybe doesn't have access to be able to purchase something in San Diego. How do you 
find deals out of state and how do you, you know, acquire those deals and, and manage those deals without having to really do too much boots on the ground. Totally. So to answer that question and something else you just said, I feel like it's super important to break any goal you have down into bite-sized steps and just take one step at a time. Like yeah. what's my most important next step? Don't think about how do I get to the finish line? Oh my God, there's so much in between here and, and there because you're going to overwhelm yourself and you're not going to take action. You're going to be super stressed out. And it's just, it's not good for anyone. So what is the most important next step? So for instance, we were talking about, you know, raising private capital or, you know, syndicating a deal or, you know, finding that commercial debt. That's something I'm going down that path right now. And for the first time, and it's, you know, unknown, it's scary, but I'm just utilizing the tried and true tactics that I've used every step of the way, which is what is the next thing I can do? Yeah. What is the most important next thing I can do? And if you just keep doing that over and over again, it's going to get you super far and it's much more attainable. Yeah. So same thing with investing out of state. People think I'm crazy. You know, I was just having a discussion uh, right before this and uh, someone was asking me, hey, yeah, what, you know, where, where are your properties? I was like, Florida. They're like, oh, really? And I actually self-manage those properties. I, I, I'm, I don't even have a property manager. And it's all about just getting the systems in place. Yep. So I actually think it helps me because if the properties are right down the street, I think you and I were talking about this recently. It's like it's tempting to just shoot down the street and take care of something. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that option when you're yeah. investing out of state. So it forces you to build out the team, utilize the who not how strategies and, and systematize a lot of these things because I literally don't have the option to go there physically. So just building out that team and uh, in terms of buying a, a place just, you know, just through the network. Back to our, our conversation earlier, a guy in a, a mastermind um, part of Invested in St. Augustine connecting with his realtor, started talking with him, built great rapport with him. And actually all my deals are off market deals that he brought me uh, wow. just from closing fast with him, building good rapport. And then just, uh, there's a great saying I love that it's rock stars, no rock stars. And it's yep. so true. So this guy was a killer real estate agent in St. Augustine. And I said, uh, Hey, do you know any, uh, any good cleaners? He's like, yeah, I got, I got a good cleaner for you. That's how I got my cleaner. Then I asked the cleaner, Hey, do you know a good handyman? And that's how I got my handyman. Hey, I asked my handyman, do you know a good plumber? And if you start to just network within these groups and asking these really good employees if they know anyone else that's good, you know, you can build out the network pretty fast that way. Definitely. And uh, nowadays with everything, like systems are all, you know, monthly services or subscriptions. There's like something for everything. Yep. To manage the rentals, to, you know, manage the vendors, to manage the bills and all that, that could all be done while you're not putting that much effort behind it. You mentioned briefly the boutique hotels. Like, what does that look like? And I feel like that's, that's such a unique strategy. And, and my goal today talking with you is just like really giving some insight onto like, how many different directions your real estate career could go and your path. And, and I think another big thing to focus on, which is you came to San Diego, you moved into California when the narrative right now is everyone's moving out. But yeah, going back to my original questions, you know, the unique avenue of getting to like boutique hotels, right. like that's a, that's a pivot from your short-term rentals and any of your long-term real estate. I know you mentioned or we had chatted you were you were looking for businesses and so talk about that pivot not only from real estate or or short-term rentals but like entertaining other avenues of business that you're you have that freedom with real estate for to sure do. 
So the biggest pivot that happened was deciding like, hey, I'm kind of done with single family short-term rentals. I think there's still opportunities, so I don't want someone to listen to this and be like, oh, you know, I can't get into that. But for me, I think the ship has sailed a little bit just in terms of making, it's a lot of work to run a short-term rental. And where rates are currently at, you can still cash flow on these deals, but the amount of work isn't worth it for me anymore. I think yeah. in terms of the cash flow I'd be getting from a short-term rental. So I started, you know, leaving the W-2. One of my goals was, um, you know, acquiring a business. And there's a lot of, I'm sure, you know, people have heard this, but, you know, millions of baby boomers that are retiring in the next, you know, 10 years. So I started looking at different service-based businesses. And what I quickly came to realize, not that I'm totally disinterested in that path, is it's very active. I think a lot of yeah. people go into that avenue thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy a service-based business and just hire an operator. It's going to be passive. That's not, it's just not the case. Like 99.9% of the time, you're going to be super active in the business if you want it to be successful. Probably going to be working 100-hour weeks. So I started thinking, do I really want to buy myself like another W-2, essentially, like a glorified W-2 where I'm the owner now? And that kind of gave me pause. I had been hearing about boutique hotels though for the past year or two. And it really interested me because it was kind of the next natural progression in the short-term rentals, right? Because it, it follows a lot of the same principles and systems as short-term rentals, just kind of on steroids. But the beauty of it is that if you improve the net operating income, otherwise known as the NOI on a, on a boutique hotel, it operates like commercial real estate. So it'll actually increase the value of that hotel substantially. If you do the same thing with a, a single family house, it's going to appraise just based on other comps in the area, not based on the business. Yep. So once I started to really understand that concept, I was like, I know how to improve these houses. I know how to take these tired assets, which is what I'm targeting with boutique hotels, kind of these tired hotels that need some renovations that need new furniture, improve them. A lot of these owners aren't even listing their uh, boutique hotels on the OTAs on Airbnb or Verbo. Yeah. So like you can go in, do some renovations, list on these sites, drop in some cool amenities and substantially improve the value. And then after 12 to 24 months, do a cash out refinance, pull out a good chunk of your change, rinse and repeat. And then you have a big exit at the end of year, you know, five or 10 in addition to the cash out refi. You don't have those same opportunities with single family short-term rentals. So that light bulb started to click. And I really like that it's going to be a lot of work to get into these deals, to manage these deals. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's a little bit more passive and aligned with my goal lifestyle of like, I'm, I'm not going to have to be working 100 hour weeks once I get into this. I can outsource yeah. it to property management, et cetera. And you're, you're really just, you're buying a business within the real estate. Like you, you, you're buying the real estate, but with that comes the business. I feel like you didn't totally like leave the idea of buying a business, but with real estate, you can have a business where you're just, people are paying you for a place to sleep. Exactly. And, and the tax benefits. Yeah. The, I mean, the tax benefits that you're not getting with uh, these service-based businesses, uh, you know, being able to do a cost cost segregation study yep. um, and bonus appreciation, although being phased out slowly, have heard rumbles that depending on, you know, who's in office, yep. uh, not to stir the pot too much, <laughs> but I would say for Republicans in office, uh, it's likely going to make a comeback in some form. So um, well, the, the bonus depreciation is another big one too. Yeah. I was, I was chatting with an account who his firm all they do is cost segregations and they do them nationwide and he just mentioned you know he's confident that 
bonus depreciation and cost segregations, they're, they're, they're here to stay. And they've been around since the sixties, I believe he said. And, you know, it just comes and goes in different fashions, but they've never gone away. And he believes that, that they won't go away, but there's, there is a phasing out of the bonus depreciation. For anyone who doesn't know what bonus depreciation is, so typically your, your, your building or your real estate depreciates by 27 and a half years. There's a cost segregation report or study that certain accountants and engineers can, can complete that allows you to push your bonus depreciation or bring forward a lot of these parts of the building that doesn't last, that don't last 27 and a half years and take them in the first few years of the of purchasing the property which really is a massive benefit in owning real estate like you said not you wouldn't have that in in you know buying a service based business or or building out a service based business but i think that that those are all the tools that come with real estate you know in comparison to buying a business or building a business working with a w2 exactly cuz w2 you know, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. No, right? yeah. There is a, a workaround. So if you're claiming what's called real estate professional status and you work a full-time W-2, it's technically you can try to claim it, but it's very difficult because you have to prove you're working more time, over 750 hours and more time on your real estate than your W-2. The workaround is if you're, which is totally warranted by the IRS, if your spouse doesn't work, they can be the real estate professional and you can utilize real estate professional status through your spouse if they're, you know, checking these boxes to offset your W-2 income and actually bring down your tax bill. So that's a, that's awesome. it's a hundred percent legitimate way to go about it. Isn't there another option with uh, short-term rentals, uh, something like that? There is, I don't have the specifics, but there is something with short-term rentals as well. Another avenue that's warranted by the IRS that you don't have to be a real estate professional, but you still capture a lot of these benefits. Yep. The one thing I did want to mention based on what you said earlier as well is um, the bonus depreciation on top of the cost segregation study. Yeah. So if you, you know, with a short-term rental or even a boutique hotel, you're going to be buying a lot of year one costs. So that's like furniture, decor, you know, any amenities you're dropping in, all those things can be a or what was a hundred percent bonus depreciation year one, that year you bought them. It's down to 80% in 2023. And once again, as we were talking about going down to 60% in 2024, but yep. that's still super beneficial. That's just on top of the cost segregation study, yep. this bonus depreciation. I'm sure you're experiencing this a lot as you uh, raise you know, investor money for your ADUs. And what I plan on doing for when I raise money for the boutique hotel deals, if you're able to actually pass on these tax benefits to your investors. Yep. So it's super beneficial when they're investing with you or if they, you know, someone were to invest with me and I'm getting all these tax benefits with my deals, I'm able to benefit from them, but I'm also able to pass them down to my investors. So now they're making cash flow on the deal, pretty substantial cash flow, and they're getting these tax benefits yeah. uh, for being a, you know, a, a limited partner in the deal passively. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, this conversation like is a really in-depth like and sophisticated investor conversation but i or at least it seems to be but i i feel like a lot of investors could really pick up on these tactics and i was chatting with with a friend the other day that invested in some real estate with his his father with the plan to pass on the 
uh, bonus depreciation. Unfortunately, neither of them were real estate professionals, which caused them some issues on that, that strategy. But you just chat with someone like yourself or a real estate broker like myself, and they're able to give you that information pretty quickly. And I feel like where you know you and I are at or others, it seems a bit tough to, to ask for some help or ask for some input. But anyone who's done what, what you're trying to do or is doing what you want to do is always willing to help. Always willing to help someone who you know is willing to you know put in the legwork or provide a little bit of value to them in order to get some of this information. I don't want to go too deep into cost segs or bonus depreciation or tax benefits, but one thing I wanted to like go a little deeper on is boutique hotels. I feel like that term is super pretty, but I don't think what you're buying is boutique hotels. Sure. What exactly are you looking for, and like what does a boutique hotel mean sure yeah no the the term is uh is funny i've joked around with a few people uh, around it it's definitely a lot sexier than saying like yeah i'm gonna go buy a plumbing business and i will say i think there's a incredible opportunity here in the next couple of years with boutique hotels so i'm a huge contrarian the way i think hence my comments about like "Ah, i'm not really trying to buy any single family uh short-term rentals yep is that Hence my comment about not uh, wanting to buy any more single family short-term rentals Yeah, because I think that ship has sailed. It's saturated. Everyone's talking about it. When I see so many people talking about it and your average Joe kind of like doing it, I kind of know it's time to not dive into that field. If you go on YouTube, you go on, you know, wherever and search boutique hotels, there's actually not a lot of content out there. Yep. And only a few people are talking about it within the niche, which tells me it's a great time to get in because I think it's at the beginning stages of becoming something big and I want to ride that wave up. But to, to answer your question, I'm targeting. So my buy box is uh, value add, steep value add. So I want to buy these, you know, tired assets, these tired boutique hotels who have been owned by, you know, a mom and pop operator for, you know, 30 years, haven't had any updates. The bones are good. You know, it's in a good location, but they just, it's outdated. It's sleepy. Yeah. It's tired. You walk in there, you're just like, ugh. You know, like, I I don't really want to stay here, but it could be something special. Putting, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars into the renovations, into new furniture, dropping, you know, uh, cool amenities in, and then uh, listing on the OTAs. Like I said earlier, a lot of these mom and pop owners don't even list on Airbnb or Verbo. So you can immediately improve, uh, improve the returns with doing something as simple as that as well. So is a boutique hotel... Is that also, does a motel fall in that range? Like what, what exactly like, you know, is what you're looking for? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So my ideal hotel is a model by which the doors are exterior facing. Okay. Um, so you're able to leverage these digital locks mm-hmm. that are on single family short-term rentals yep. or a, a lot of houses. Like I have one on my house as well to automate a lot of the systems. So it, it, it enables guests to do self check-in. Okay. So you can, in theory, and people leverage this model of not having like a check-in person on staff. It's all automated. People check in themselves. They're given the code just like Airbnb when you're checking into a single family house. Yeah. So that would be my first option. But there are certainly other deals I'm interested in that are, 
you know, that's not the case. And there's an opportunity for an onsite, you know, uh, staff or, or something to that effect. But I'm really focusing more on like these, you know, 10 to 30 doors, maybe 40 or 50 doors, but I'm not yeah. looking to buy, you know, 300 door, you know, Marriott, for instance, that's yeah. kind of where the, the cutoff is. So I don't know if it's cut and dry what a boutique hotel is versus a regular hotel, but they tend to be on the smaller side. Okay, awesome. And what does it look like to purchase a boutique hotel? Like from like the search, we talked about what you're looking for, but what type of lenders or what type of loan you're looking at? You know, how are you financing the remodel? Uh, are you financing it? And, and um, you know, what does that look like for someone who wants to buy a boutique hotel? Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to do it. So it typically comes down to raising, unless you're sitting on a pile of cash, you can certainly just take down your own deal. Typically you'd be looking at like a bridge loan. So a two-year loan where you put roughly, it usually comes out about 35% of the all-in costs. That's the purchase price, but also includes the rehab costs. Okay. You can get a loan for that full amount or 35% of, or you're basically getting putting 35% down, the bank's giving you 65% and you're banking on the fact that you're going to build that enough value or uh, you're going to improve the NOI enough that within two years, you're going to be able to pull out that cash and and refinance it into something more solid. So to come up with that 35%, either you're sitting on a pile of cash or you're going and raising money from investors. Yep. And that can be done in two ways. You can either give up equity in the deal which is the most typical way to do it and bring on partners, limited partners, yep. uh, where they're experiencing a lot of the, uh, you know, tons of benefits from the deal and cash flow and those tax benefits we were talking about earlier yep. without lifting a finger. And you can, as the investor, actually get into a lot of commercial operators in these deals aren't putting a dollar of their own money down, but they're getting a big split for doing all the legwork of finding the deal. Uh, going through the rehab, etc. So you, in theory, can get into a, you know a seven million dollar boutique hotel and not put a dollar of your own money into it. That's amazing. So as you bring on investors, like how do you structure a deal to make an investor enticed? And like you talked about, sort of the the NOI. Like how does the do those coincide in terms of bringing an investor on and like pitching this? Like I'm gonna do this get this NOI as high as possible. And this is the route. Yeah, yeah, totally. So typically at a very high level, what's in it for the investor is they're going to get to experience a guaranteed cash flow on the deal as well as participate in, in, in any upside cash flow. Yeah. And on top of that, when I go to refinance the deal, they're going to also get to participate in the uh, the refinance proceeds and any upside in the refinance. Okay. So they're, Lastly, they're also able to experience the tax benefits that are passed down from, from buying real estate. So as a limited partner who invests cash into one of these deals, you're getting all the benefits of the deal that I'm getting, if not more, just based on how the splits work. And you're not, you don't have to lift a finger. You're, yeah. you're not doing any of the work. So it's, it's a really beneficial way to, uh, to get exposure to real estate if you don't want to you know, actively invest in real estate. Yeah, definitely. I think one key thing that I, I'd like to focus here is like, you know, new investors are going to say, well, I've never done it and there's no way anyone's going to invest with me. You're not a new investor, but you are new to boutique hotels in most senses. You do have the experience of the short-term rentals. And I think there's a lot of systems that you can, you know, expand on into the boutique hotels. But like for 
you know, clients of mine looking to buy their first big deal. How would you like, there's an aspect of you being new to that and you selling to investors, but you're confident that you're going to find investors to these deals. How would you recommend someone pitch this? And, you know, how do you look at that being new and, and, um, you know, trying to get investors? Yes. You're catching me. I mean, live right in the middle of it, right? Like I'm, I'm dealing with this like struggle and this, uh, uh, it's just a limited mindset thing, man. Yeah. Like if you talk to any commercial uh, syndicator, someone who's raising money for these deals, they all say it's like, you know, imposter syndrome. They say like, ah, like who am I to go, you know, raise this money? And I think it's just important to just go back to the foundation and go back to like, I'm confident in my abilities and my knowledge, and I know I'm going to make the deal work. So let's just go back to the basics, get confidence in yourself and overcome those limited beliefs in yourself and that limited mindset and just know, hey, it's all about shifting your mindset to like, this is a home run for the investor as well. Like I am helping people build wealth by raising money and putting them into these deals through this vehicle. Like I, yeah, my goal is to bring up everyone around me, all my investors around me and make them tons of money and change their lives. I'm not asking for money to, you know, for any nefarious reasons, right? Like it's all, we're all coming up together, investing in these great deals to make money. So that's a big shift of just like, I feel like as I started to raise money, it was like, they're doing me a favor to invest in my deal. But the shift is you're doing them a favor and the, the cash is the vehicle for that favor. And it's just an exchange of services. They're investing their cash with you and you're putting your sweat, your knowledge, your experience and your sweat equity into the deal. And so I, I think that was a big shift for me is like they're not doing you a favor giving you cash. You have to look at it like you earn their cash because you have a tried and true system, a business plan in place, like the knowledge, the education. And I think the mindset, I I think the biggest thing is mindset. We talked a lot about mindset the other day and there's so much stuff out there about mindset, but it's so important. I wanted to ask what your favorite piece of real estate is within your portfolio, whether it's something you sold or something you still own today. So it's it's a tough one between two properties I own. One of them's in St. Augustine, Florida. It's just a home run deal. Okay. I got it for $800,000. It's appraised at 1.2 million recently and I got it less than 3 years ago or maybe about 3 years ago. Yeah. For some appreciation, did uh, a rehab to the inside, dropped the pool in and I just bought it at the perfect time. Um yeah. in the market like I timed the market perfectly both in terms of interest rate and purchase prices during COVID. Um, so that one's just a home run. I'm locked in at like 3% interest rates. So I think the mortgage for the entire year is like 60 grand. There's some other, you know, capital expenditures, et cetera, but it grosses $250,000 a year. So it's just a home run deal. Um, so that's a nice piece of real estate. And then the, the piece of real estate we're sitting at now, I love, was a, a property I picked up in, uh, in San Diego back in March for $1.68 million. I actually put a pool out back and some hardscaping. And bought it at a pretty good time in the market cycle. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're a realtor in the area. I would say it could probably sell for, what, 1.85, 1.9? I mean, I think we could push it closer or beyond, too. Just all the value you've added, but also what you capitalized on in terms of that time. Because I bought a couple pieces of real estate in that time, that March yep. to May time, where it was a just the negativity was through the roof. Things are going to crash. 
the whole narrative was rates kept going up and they're not coming down. It was a slow curve of like uh, lenders and agents still selling you on on rates are, are coming back down. And then they'd still increase. Every time the Fed came out, they'd still increase. And the news ran with that. Yep. And I feel like turned it into this bloodbath where things were going to crash and no one knew what was happening. And there was a period where things sat. And I feel like I bought two deals in three deals, one in March, two in April. And those three deals all sat on the market. I think you mentioned you're sat on yep. the market, not because it's not a great property or anything like that. It was just that time. It was such a scary moment for buyers and sellers alike. Yep. And I think you got a killer deal. Uh, it was originally listed for I over, say, two, over, over two, over two million. So I think it started at 2.1 or 2.2. And then they slowly dropped it over like a 60 day period all the way down to one eight or 185 and then I came in and was like hey yeah one I think I did one seven with a $20,000 seller assist to cover closing costs so yeah uh, it will say I got it for one seven but in reality with the $20,000 closing costs there's one six eight so that's awesome and I think like you know maybe it wasn't two two point one. it wasn't worth 2.1 but that's like the the knowledge and the the agent that's representing you trying to push it for too high and the difference between like being priced correctly and getting it sold quickly versus a little bit too high sitting for a long time and ultimately giving up a big reduction yep so i think you capitalized on two things is is just pricing was a little bit off and the timing that timing was was crucial i'm sure you saw the same thing as you were you were coming out here and then you added the pool and you added all the hardscaping so all those things plus i'm sure you guys will see some of the the views from here but the views from here are like untouchable and and um, like none other. So for I sure. think this is a great piece of property for you. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, as I kind of progress in my real estate journey, I'm getting more and more into the mindset of just buying like really good real estate yeah. to hold for the long run. Like I know that this piece of property with you know anything close to the water, or, like views of the bay, like that's just a piece of real estate that's going to do well in the long term. Oh yeah. And I would rather almost take like, not that I'm renting this place out right now, but just from an investor standpoint, almost take less cash flow. And my yep. mindset's kind of shifted more towards the long-term appreciation play versus trying to make this huge number on the cash flow. Yeah. I'm kind of looking at buying just better real estate that will appreciate for the long run now. I really like that because I've been a San Diego investor for six, seven years now, and cash flow is not our thing out yeah. here. Yeah. But the equity growth, like here, in 10 years compared to one of your St. Augustine pro properties in 10 years, it's going to be, you know, no matter where you place with this view, this type of real estate, like just the growth is just exponentially larger than 99% of other places, other real estate in the U.S. Yep. So yeah, thanks for taking the time. And I know you're looking for deals right now and you're probably looking for you know, roles to fill and, and different things. And, and so if someone wanted to, you know, reach out and, and get some information or get in touch with you just to, to understand how you did it or, or how they could help, you know, what's a good place to find you and, and how should they reach out? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me, Christian. It's been awesome. So you can reach me at jake at purelegacies.com is my email. Okay. And then my Instagram handle is jake.r.rosenthal. 
Okay. Uh, you can shoot me a message there. In terms of roles, yeah, I am looking for someone to handle some of the guest communication yeah. on the uh, short-term rental side, and then that could grow into a role as I start to acquire boutique hotels to uh, to do some of that as well on that side. Awesome. And, and where, are the, where are you looking for boutique hotels? So I would love to buy something in the San Diego area. The competition's yeah. pretty tough here, so I'm not just looking here. Also in Tahoe and then Northern California. Okay. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, places like Oregon and, you know, the Midwest. Awesome. Um, so those are my primarily primary areas for right now. Perfect. Well, if you guys have a deal or want to reach out, feel free to reach out to Jake or myself and I could put you in touch with him. Thanks a lot, guys.